Welcome to Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever, a podcast for the thinking Washington Wizards fan. My name is Ben Becker. My co-host was just named for the 11th year running as People Magazine's most beautiful person who blogs about the Wizards with a heavy analytics bent. Hello, Kevin Broom. Thank you for that fine introduction, Ben, and I'm happy to say that I was not traded at the deadline. (laughs) Kevin, the All-Star break has ended with a bit of a thud of reality for the Wizards. They made something of an uninspiring trade that we will dive into. They then laid an egg in Philadelphia just as their schedule was about to actually get tough. So we'll also talk about what to expect in the coming games. But let's start with this trade. The Wizards traded Andrew Nicholson and an unprotected first-round pick in the upcoming draft for Boyan Bogdanovich, also known as Bogey, and you should feel free to call him that, and a prospect named Chris McCullough. Uh, We can dive into him a little bit as well. So let's talk about this trade. First, just in terms of the present, how much does this deal stand to help the current version of the Wizards? It helps a bit. Bogey is... He's a guy. I mean, he's he's not he's below average. Rates pretty solidly below average in my, you know my analysis. He shoots the ball pretty well. You know, good three point shooter. Makes his two point shots as well, which is also a good sign. Good free throw shooter, but he doesn't really do anything else. You know, he doesn't doesn't rebound. He's among the worst rebounders for small forwards and power forwards in the league. He doesn't block shots. He doesn't steal the ball. He definitely doesn't play defense. He's one of the worst defenders in the league. I think defensive ESPN's defensive real plus minus has him 432nd out of 450. I have him in the defense part of PPA uh, near the bottom. So they've got a guy. He's going to help some with the shooting. I think there's a possibility that he perhaps could be a bit better for Washington than he was in Brooklyn because I don't think they'll ask him to create offense as much. I think They'll put him into a bit more of a catch-and-shoot kind of role, maybe use him in screen roll sets, that kind of thing. Could be a good partner with John Wall in some of those screen roll type of sets or cutting to the corner. A little higher turnover than I would like, but again, that could be because he's being asked to initiate offense in Brooklyn, and he probably won't be asked to do much of that in Washington. So let me ask you about a couple things about the defensive aspect of of bogey the first is on the offensive side he might be a little better in dc than he was in brooklyn because he's going to be asked to do different things from your analysis is there any reason to believe that he might be better defensively with an overall better defensive supporting cast around him than he was in in brooklyn as well is there reason to believe that he's not in fact a putrid defensive player maybe he's just not a plus one or are you pretty sure that he's a bad defender when it comes to defense there's always going to be some uncertainty in the numbers he's been a bad defender throughout his career but some of that could be that he's been playing on nothing but bad teams Brooklyn has been terrible every year he's been there and the question always with players is is he a product of his environment or is he a product of himself my tendency is to assign responsibility for a player's performance to the player however on defense much of much of good defense is teamwork and he has not had good teammates to work with defensively that said 
the individual parts of defense are not very impressive either. You know, he doesn't steal the ball. He doesn't block shots. Those are things that he could do individually with or without good teammates. He doesn't do them. There were 117 power forwards and small forwards who have played at least 500 minutes so far this season, according to basketball reference. He ranks 112th in steals. This is pace-adjusted steals. He ranks 117th in blocks. So that's dead last in blocks. He blocks fewer shots than, like, you know, Isaiah Thomas does. Defense is going to be an issue with him. You know, the Wizards might get by because the overall impact, which is what matters, is going to be better than what they've been putting out there. He's likely to take minutes, I think, probably from, like, Jason Smith and maybe from, you know, Jason smith Mahinmi combination. I think they're going to continue to play Oubre, and I think they'll probably use him more as... Uh, Bogdanovich, rather, they'll use more as a backup to Morris and play Smith and Mahinmi as sort of the backup to Gortat. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's somewhat right. I'm not 100% certain that Ubre's minutes are totally solid based on the Philly game and, and some of Brooks's comments yeah. after that. That that's that Well, I mean, it's worth seen, talking about but... Ubre for a second because, you know, you, you and I have, have had conversations about this off the air or off the, the what, the offline? Um, yeah where outside of the pod yeah there's there's a there's a big sentimental attachment to Ubre, and i personally don't think it's warranted you know he's he's he could be a good player one day but he's so far from that and i don't think fans necessarily realize how little he actually accomplishes when he's out there the team does pretty well has done pretty well so far this season with him out there despite the fact that he's not personally productive but, you know, it's not like he's been good. He's been below replacement level. Let, let me inject my perspective on this as it relates to sentimentality and Ubre. I wrote a piece for Bullets Forever before the deadline, sort of talking about how Ernie Grunfeld can thread the needle, so to speak, and get himself out of the corner that he's painted the Wizards into. And one of the suggestions that I made in that article was not to just get rid of Ubre, but to dangle him and to see what the market for him was. Mm-hmm. Because he's a young player with upside. As you said, he's clearly not ready to be a consistent contributor yet. But you can certainly see that other teams would attach themselves to his potential. There's a lot to like about him. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces of feedback that I received on the piece, both on Twitter and just in the comments was, well, Ubre should be untouchable. And yeah. and what what was driving that was a lot of people like Kelly Ubre. First of all, Ubre is a likable guy. Yeah. Um, I love him. And and he also he does things that are memorable. He you know, his steals, his dunks, when he's playing well, he makes threes. Those are things that make impressions on our brain and our memories, and we say, "Okay, this guy's gonna be good because he's doing this." And in real time, you don't you, you don't look at the big picture, mm-hmm. and and so that's a that's a an understandable fan response. Mm-hmm. My concern, as I look at the owner's Twitter and the fact that he mm-hmm. seems to really like Kelly Oubre and his hashtags, and I see that during the All Star break, the you know the the team's PR apparatus is releasing video snippets on Ubre. My concern is they just said, you know what, we like Kelly Ubre and we're not going to trade Kelly Ubre. And and maybe that's that's too cynical. 
but I remain concerned that they attach themselves to guys and without saying, oh, there's a better return out there that can help us now and in the future. Let's pursue that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And I think it ties into some of those franchise building goals that Leonsis has laid out several years ago that he has since taken down. But one of them is you draft players and then you keep them. You, you build in the draft. As a philosophy, I mean, that's fine. If you want to build with your draft, you should be, you know, maybe hesitant to, to trade your draft picks. But once a player is on your team, once a player is in the league, where he was picked should have no part in the evaluation of that player. Where he was picked doesn't matter anymore, except to the extent that it becomes something that you can use to increase his value if you're trading him. Because the only thing that matters is how he performs relative to his competitors in the NBA. That's one of the things that concerns me with the this team and this front office is the knowing the knowing the answer before the question even gets asked, knowing, well, we have to build through the draft when maybe the best thing to do would have been to trade Ubre because his value in terms of what you can get back exceeds the value of what he's going to provide this year and in future years. Now, it could be that though that they made an evaluation, they said, "Look, we know he's not that great right now." But we think in a couple years or next year, he's going to be terrific. We think he's he's on an auto porter type trajectory. I don't agree with that, but we think he's on an auto porter type trajectory trajectory and he's going to be, you know, terrific in a year or two. And so they wanted to hold on to him for that reason. And that's a valid reason to do that. Doesn't help much at the, you know, down the stretch of this season in the playoffs this year, but that's a valid perspective. But my concern is you know, kind of what you said, which is that they say we're not going to, you know, Ubre is untouchable. There's nobody who should be untouchable. Uh, and that includes John Wall. I mean, if if Cleveland for some reason called up and said, hey, we'll trade you LeBron for John Wall, you don't think twice about it. You do it. You know, same thing. Golden State calls and says, we'll give you Curry. You do it. San Antonio calls. So we'll give you Kawhi Leonard for John Wall. You do it. It's not even a question right. because those guys are much better. And that's right. not a knock on Wall, but it's just let's be real about it. You know, you you have to make those evaluations when you're the manager, you know, managing a team and trying to win, theoretically, a championship. Right. So jumping back to this specific trade, there's Mm -hmm. reason to believe that it's going to that at present and in this sort of immediate short future, that it's going to help the Wizards a little bit simply because Bogey's a guy and, and he may be better than his numbers say, but we're pretty sure he's not great, but he's going to take the minutes from someone on the bench that as a whole was, as, as you laid out, performing at replacement level. So they're mm-hmm. going to get a little bit better as a result. I don't know. I'm skeptical that that means going an extra round in the playoffs or winning a few extra games, but but they will get incrementally better for the balance of this season as a result of this trade. Mm-hmm. Let's... Let's talk a little bit about the future, and then I want to jump into the past again. Hmm. But, but, so... What is this? This is Andrew, like a, a Dickensian uh, novel here. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. So, look, part of the, the plus of this trade was Andrew Nicholson's contract is no longer on the books. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about how it ended up there in the first place. But, <laughs> but... They don't have a salary obligation to Andrew Nicholson anymore. Uh, 
Yeah. Bogdanovich is a pending restricted free agent. Given the Wizards' cap and tax situation, how likely do you feel it is that he's going to be on the team next year? Not very, especially, I mean, if they can't don't make any moves to clear salary, it seems very unlikely. Just to give you an idea, his qualifying offer, which is about $4.7 million, would put the Wizards, assuming Otto Porter signs for the maximum, they'll still leave the Wizards $1.1 million over the luxury tax for next year. So, And my salary formula projects his value for next year at $9.4 million. But that's another $5 million more than the qualifying offer. It seems like they're in this lose-lose situation whereby if he stinks, he'll be inexpensive and they'll be able to afford him, but yeah. he'll stink. And if he plays well, there's going to be a market for him. Yeah. And they won't be able to afford him unless ownership says, you know what, we're going to pay a luxury tax bill and we still have no reason to believe that that's going to be the case. Right. I mean, there's ways that they could clear some space. It would involve doing something like trading Jason Smith and taking no money back or very little money back or trading Mahinmi or trading Gortat or you know somebody that they would probably prefer to keep. But th- that's their options. If they want to keep... Bogdanovich, they're going to need to create some space to, to, to do that, or they're going to have to pay the luxury tax. And if they're willing to pay the luxury tax, why make a move for a guy like Bogdanovich? Why not make a move for somebody who's a more significant, better player? Well, I'll tell you what scares the shit out of me. What scares me is that they are going to, because they've shown this behavior in the past, is that they are going to feel pressure to justify this trade by retaining him mm-hmm. and that's going to have uh th- that's going to have an opportunity cost that's either going to cost them another player in free agency who's better or it's going to cause them to make a dumb move with someone on their roster so that they can when you said trade gortat i shuddered at the thought of them moving gortat so that they can keep boyan bogdanovich on the roster yeah. and so that that concerns me a little bit. Yeah. The, the the odds are, it seems like the most likely scenario is that he's just going to be gone and they're going to have sent out a, a late first round pick as a means to have gotten rid of Nicholson's deal. There is one other aspect of this trade as it relates to the future, and that is a young man named Chris McCullough. I know that you track draft prospects and you analyze them, and you also look at D-League stats a little bit. In your pre-draft analysis, what did you learn and what did you think about Chris McCullough? Well, in the pre-draft, I had him with a solid don't draft grade. That was based on a number of factors. I mean, he had, for example, two-point shooting percentage for you know, big guy, you typically want them close to 60%. He was below 50%. You know, he was below the benchmark sort of for guards. His rebounding wasn't impressive. I mean, he just was a really unimpressive draft prospect. In the D-League, he's been a bit above average for the D-League. And one thing I really like is that he's added something. He's become a three-point shooter in the D-League. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So I don't have high hopes for him, but if they can get really anything from him, it's a plus considering how little he makes. I mean, he's what uh, 1.2 million this year about, uh, you know, he gets a raise next year, but not by a lot. And if they could get something from him, 
that's terrific. If they can grow him into a good player, that would be just fantastic. Um, I like the fact that he's learned to shoot threes in the uh, in in the D League, and maybe that's something that will translate when he gets a chance in the NBA. At some point between now and the draft, or in the immediate aftermath of the draft, I predict that you will hear the following, either from the Wizards' ownership, front office, or one of their media surrogates. And that is that we tr- we traded our first-round pick, but Chris McCullough's really our first-round pick. Oh, God, it, was yes. storm way, it was the same way they said, well, Markeith Morris was our first-round pick. We, I strongly believe that we will hear from someone that the organization believes that Chris McCullough is as good or better of a prospect than anyone that they would have gotten in the 20s of this upcoming draft. And so everyone should feel great about, uh, about this usage of the pick. We don't have to go too deeply into that, but given how they spin their moves and the messages that come out of the front office and that filter through some of the local sports media that covers the team, I'm strongly expecting to hear that party line at some point in the coming months. So we have looked at this move through a very narrow lens in terms of how it affects the team now and what the near future looks like as a result of this move. The broader context tells a much different story. And, and I'll, I will tell you a little story of my own. If I were to give several people $100 to go to the store and buy groceries mm-hmm. and cook me dinner, the best dinner that they could possibly cook, and someone were to come back with, you know, everyone comes back with several bags of groceries and they cook their dinner and they've got enough food to last a few you know a few days afterwards and someone and someone else comes back with a half bag of groceries mm-hmm. and with that half bag of groceries they cook a dinner that's so-so it's not great it's not terrible it's so-so w- what's the story there is it the so-so dinner or that they happened to only get a half bag's worth of groceries with that 100 bucks whereas <laughs> everyone else you know got several bags I feel like that's the situation that the Wizards are in. They were at the trade deadline without money to spend, without assets to burn, as a result of what took place this past summer. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, I think you're right, and I think you're actually being generous. I mean, if we treat your analogy, you apply your analogy to the offseason, they came back with a bag. You know, there, there was no food in there. Uh <laughs> And then you go to the trade deadline and you say, okay, you've got this this stuff. I mean, they were in the position where they were like, okay, well, how about if we give you this first-round pick that we could turn into some nutritious meal, but you have to take a piece of this bag that's <laughs> torn and soggy and rotten, you know, that's kind of Poor the Andrew analogy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish him well. Nice guy and good for him that he got the, the money that he got, but... He's, you know, he, he's not a good NBA player, and that's not necessarily his fault. The real fault of this lies in the talent evaluators who said, yeah, we've got to have Andrew Nicholson, and we've got to give him a four-year contract. Well, it's the talent evaluators and also just sort of the overall strategy mechanism that's in place 
that says not just these guys are good, but these are the contracts that we should give them, and 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 looking at the overall landscape. Take Mahinmi for instance. For instance, okay, Mahinmi they overpaid for him, obviously, mm-hmm. based on what he's what he's produced to to date, and you know you can have a discussion about injuries, how it relates to that, if if you want to. But but hold, but, hold on, but, hold on, hold on, real quick, real quick, because. You said he they've overpaid based on what he's produced to date. I would say that they overpaid for him, period. They overpaid for him at the beginning when they signed him. They, they, they gave him a value that was commensurate with what he had done in that one year, the last year before he was a free agent, but that didn't acknowledge how shaky everything was before that, including three previous seasons that were combined at replacement level. I will give you that. I will I will give now you that. Continue. <laughs> My larger point is that they grossly grossly miscalculated what the market for bigs for centers specifically was going to look like going forward. Yeah. You have you know you had all these you know guys who are generally in Mahinmi's grouping of productivity, maybe some better, maybe some worse, but a lot of guys who moved at the deadline, a lot of guys who were reportedly available, and it was a total buyer's market, and, and you know, guys like Tyson Chandler, who should have moved teams, didn't, because there just aren't that many teams that need veteran centers, etc., and the Wizards are, are stuck with this guy. Meanwhile, Nerland's freaking Noel mm-hmm. was traded by Philadelphia to Dallas for Justin Anderson, the expiring contract of Andrew Bogut, and a first-round pick that's so protected that it's likely to convey as two seconds. Mm -hmm. If the Wizards didn't have Mahinmi, they basically could have given up Oubre and their late first for Noel, Mm -hmm. and they would have had the, the money or close to retain Noel this summer, and Noel makes... 10 times more sense than Mahinmi does as someone who can share time with Gortat in the immediate term and then take over for him as as Gortat ages. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, this is I mean it goes back to one they as you say they misjudged fundamentally didn't understand where the league was going in the sense that bigs the true traditional centers are not valued as in ways that they once were. So that's one. And two, they misjudged and screwed up when they did things like giving multiple multi-year contracts to guys like Jason Smith and Andrew Nicholson. Neither of those guys warranted those kinds of deals. And so if they had signed Nicholson to a one-year deal, maybe with a player option or a team option on the second year, if they had signed Smith to a one-year deal, if they had given guys one-year deals... If they had sort of taken a step back and said, okay, we've struck out on Durant, we've struck out on Horford, what we're left with is a bunch of guys who maybe they can do a little something, but none of them are all that impressive. Maybe let's go one-year deals and try again in free agency next year or the you know the following year. Maybe we keep, keep some cap flexibility to lock some guys up, some of our guys up, make sure that we have enough money to do that. And then something like Nerlens Noel just pops up, and you can get a guy who's he's a good player, he's 
can play center. He's a terrific defensive player. He's developing offensively. You know, he's shooting the ball pretty well on jump shots this year. And he'd be a great pick and pick and roll partner with a guy like John Wall. That kind of thing comes up. But the Wizards handcuffed themselves to these mediocre, not even mediocre, these crummy players. And they did it for multiple years. And so they've just they've handcuffed themselves and their ability to make interesting moves that could really actually improve the team. That is the critical point of this episode of of the podcast. And that is why, even though this trade may incrementally help the Wizards in the short term, it embitters a lot of people who follow the team closely and who care about them because you are exactly right. The uh, These multi-year... Look, I totally agree with you. If they had found themselves and they said, you know what, we didn't get the guys we want. We want to try these other guys out. Let's give them. Let's give them one-year deals. Their agents say, you know, screw you. I'm not taking one-year deal. Fine. You know, you're, you're giving them two-year deals. O- okay, like that's but, fine. But ben, and here's the and, thing. And if Jason Smith says, to, if Jason Smith's agent says to you, well, we're not signing a one-year deal, then you know what you do. You go to the next. You go to the next guy, and you because I am not arguing. I'm dozen guys not who can do what Jason you. Smith does. You know, no, I understand. Andrew Nicholson said we're not taking a one year deal. You say fine, go go somewhere else. Okay, but even in that universe where you where you take a two year deal for a Nicholson or a Smith, and I hear you and I agree with you, but even in a universe where you're obligated to those guys for two years, mm-hmm. the 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 deals that the Wizards made cost were the difference between them getting Bogdanovich and them getting Lou Williams, okay? Mm-hmm. Lou Williams got traded for a first-round pick that is going to be significantly worse than the Wizards, mm-hmm. and for Corey Brewer, an unproductive player whose contract doesn't run out any sooner than Williams's does. I mean, it was actually a pretty bad trade by the Lakers. They got a very, very late first, and they got no salary relief. And maybe right. in their analysis, Corey Brewer is a good player, but I, I don't think so. I think they just said, hey, we're getting a first-round pick out of this, and we're not taking on any further salary obligation, so that's good. If yeah. Andrew Nicholson is an expiring contract, or if Andrew Nicholson runs another year, the Wizards get Lou Williams instead of this Bogdanovich trade, and the Wizards don't have this awful problem with their backup point guard. Right. And and so that's what the cost of of this last offseason was. The Wizards now now there's another way that they really hurt themselves or and it's very related obviously, but we keep talking about the room that they're going to have this summer staying you know to stay under the luxury tax and to keep guys and add guys. Well, the deal that Toronto made for PJ Tucker where they gave up an expiring contract and two second-round picks mm-hmm. was not a deal that was really available to the Wizards because they've given away a lot of second-round picks, and they don't have much in the way of expiring contracts. They could yeah. have given up Burke. Maybe that's a, a better deal for Phoenix. Maybe Phoenix doesn't want to deal with Washington anymore. But, but, but even so, without having these flexible deals and without having these extra picks because you've made smart moves along the way— when it comes time to go to the store and buy, and there are other people shopping, you don't have the money, and so you end up with these very uninspiring deals that that don't move the needle very much. 
Yeah, and the thing is, is like, okay, you're going to spend your first round pick. Get as much as you can for it, especially considering it's probably going to be a rental anyway. You know, if you if it's going to be a rental, which it probably is because of all the financial constraints that we've talked about, you might as well get a better player. You might as well trade for a guy like Ilyasova, for example, from Philly. Would Philly have preferred a first round pick than the the junk they got? Probably. You know, that, that would have been an option. You know, you look at what uh, Chicago got for Taj Gibson. You know, Gibson is a better player. You're pretty comfortable saying that Taj Gip- Gibson's going to have more overall impact on a game yeah. than Bogey will, just based on yeah. everything we know about both players. And So we're salty. I, I'm hearing both of us. Uh, yeah. Even well, you know, having... It's, I mean... Here's the thing. It's it's. I think we're a little frustrated because the team is good. They're winning games. They're one of the top four teams in the East, and they really have a chance to do something special this season. And they went into the trade deadline and they made a deal and they got a guy who doesn't really move the needle very much. And they dumped one of their mistakes and they sacrificed a first round pick to do it. It's really uninspiring. I mean, when I first heard the deal. I kind of was like a oh, CC minus kind of grade, and then the more I thought about it, the more I the more I disliked it because of what it represents. It, you know, it you trade your first round pick. It's kind of a bit more of an all in move. Not it's not an all in move, but it's a move for the short term for this year, and then hopefully you can have him around for the future. You know, to to build with. This guy isn't that. You know, he's he's a guy who is marginally better than the people that they're already playing. He doesn't really move the needle for them in any way. You know, it's not like the Wizards changed from a 50-win team to a 54-win team because they traded for him. You know, or even a 52-win team. They changed from like a 50-win team to a, you know, 50.2-win team. You know, people said bench scoring, bench scoring, bench scoring. They need bench scoring. And, and. Look, that that was clearly one of their needs, and you know, Bogey was starting in Brooklyn, and now he's coming off the bench, so maybe they think he'll he'll score more comfortably. I, personally, I don't think they they address their biggest need, which to me was a physical wing defender, and that's why I was so disappointed to see after the Ibaka deal, Toronto pick up Tucker because. Yeah. In that Cleveland game, we clearly saw that they can play with these guys and they need someone, a physical wing defender who can switch and push people off the block and all that stuff. I thought Tucker was that guy. And so we'll see. We I know that we are both hoping that Bogdanovich exceeds our expectations. Absolutely. Um, let's have a quick discussion about those expectations as it relates to the Wizards' upcoming schedule. This is gonna. This podcast is gonna be released after the Utah game. Um, they laid an egg in Philly in a game that they absolutely should have won against a bad team who was playing without their best player in Embiid and without two of their better players that they have had just traded in Noel and Ilyasova. It, it was a really bad loss, particularly given how difficult the upcoming schedule is with a very good Utah team with a historically great Golden State team, and then a home-and-home against a recently significantly improved Toronto team. Mm -hmm. So what are we we to take from the Philly loss, and what are we to expect over these next four? Okay, well, a couple things. One, you know, I 
run my prognostication machine. And the Wizards dropped, actually, their projected record for the full season actually dropped two games because of that Philly game. Now, that's not because the loss was so horrifically devastating that it fundamentally changes the nature of my evaluation of the Wizards. It's because they lost a game that they were heavily favored in. That's one. And then some of the one of the coin flip games that they were, would have been favored to win, you know, slight favorites. They're now probably slight underdogs. But it doesn't really change the, you know, the fundamental nature of the team. The team is, is still pretty good. It's still going to probably finish in the top four in the East. Um, I think Toronto probably helped themselves a bit in the at the trade deadline and moved ahead of where the Wizards are likely to be. And Boston is probably a little bit better, too. In terms of the next four games, it's going to be tough. I think they're probably going to lose three. Um, it, see, this, again, it's a question of what you want to do. If you use the full season's worth of data, they would be expected to um, win one and lose three. The one that they are slight favorites to win is the home game against Toronto, and that would mean losses at uh, against Utah, Golden State, and at Toronto. The Golden State and Toronto games, the Wizards are substantial underdogs. Against Utah, they're a coin flip underdog. Against Toronto, that home game, they're a coin flip favorite. Figure they win one of those two, and uh, so they probably will go one and three. If we throw out the first 10 games as we've sort of done that hypothetical, say that ah, it's just an extended preseason for the Wizards this year, new coach, John Wall getting healthy, you know, those kinds of things, then they might win two of those games. Um, so, but this, it, the schedule does definitely get tougher. So far this season, their opponents have been almost a point per game uh, worse than average. And the rest of the way, they're going to be about a half half a point per game better than average the opponents will be so it's going to heat up and then you know then there's a stretch coming up starting march one where they play a ton of road games and that's going to be a challenge too that philly lost stunk you know that they are salty about it and hopefully as a result uh somewhere over these next four they win a game that they shouldn't you know the the wizards fan in me says holy cow like they could lose these next four and be on a five game losing streak and 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 really imperil the success that they've had so far this season one in three is painful because of that philly loss because going two and three over that five game stretch is okay one and four doesn't feel good so you know hopefully they can split these next four if they were to do that i'd feel pretty good about it and if anything beyond a split uh, would feel like a huge win. Um, y- y- you never know. Right. With that, we are going to wrap today's episode. A little bit of a salty episode, and, and hopefully uh, hopefully next time we record, we've got some good things to talk about. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or however you listen to podcasts. Kevin is on Twitter at broom underscore Kevin. You can find his Wizards-related work on Bullets Forever, and you can check out kevinbroom.com for Kevin's other writing, including his upcoming mystery novel. I'm on Twitter, at underscore Ben Becker, and until next time, this is Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever. <laughs>